Hi everyone. Today I had the pleasure of speaking with Andrew, who goes online by the moniker Shagbark. He's a Catholic writer and a advocate for rural revitalism. He's advocating for a traditional lifestyle and for people to build communities offline. We talked about his experience in the military, his experience living nomadically across the U.S. for five years, about being totally off the grid, his awakening and movement from a anarchist leftist position to a more traditionalist position, the dark night of the soul, rumspringer, degeneracy, the collapse of Western civilization, escape, finding optimism and building local, rural versus urban life, dating, the Amish, opportunities in the future, and the ultimate importance of land, nature, and spirituality for personal fulfillment. Thanks for listening. The first thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, your Twitter handle. You've written about that in some of your writing. Maybe you can expand on that and why you chose that kind of handle. Shag bark, like uh, like shag bark hickory. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, I, it's one of my favorite trees because the I guess I like the structure of the um, the bark. It's very um, I don't know. It's 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 not very inviting. You know, it's very it's kind of a tough manly tree, but the but the nut that it produces is very rich and oily, and it's a life giving tree because you can build with it. And it's sturdy as hell, and it burns well, and it gives good shade. It's just a classic American tree, you know. So I've always admired the shagbark, uh, the shagbark hickory a lot because I, I, the way I see it, trees sort of have uh, personality in a sense. You can learn from them, you know. That kind of so, links to your essay. You wrote, you have a really great essay, The Paragons on Futility, and you yeah. kind of really go into the – I'm going to mispronounce this, but the Adirondacks, I'm not really sure how Adirondacks. Yeah. Adirondacks. Yeah. And there's kind of a permanent frontier aspect to that. And I'm curious, maybe you can elaborate on that and how that links to your, your handle and the hickory tree and kind of how the environment is really shaping what you're doing and what you're writing about. Well, it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of components there. The first thing I'll say is that, you know, you take certain places in the United States, like you take coastal New England or maybe the Ohio River Valley. It was a frontier at one time, and then the, the time came where it wasn't because there's something about those lands that man could actually subjugate, which isn't to say that they don't have their wild moments, but generally speaking, um, you can do it. You can go to western ohio you can cut down whatever's there you can plant corn you can build a cabin you can get everything going and then all of a sudden you know one thing leads to another and you're sitting on the interstate at a at a at a dunkin donuts whereas the the adirondacks is right up there with some other places in the u.s that they're they're fundamentally not conquerable places in a sense in that they resist it or that Every effort to put civilization onto those lands is extremely tenuous and um, it's temperamental and you're constantly reminded in environments like that, that uh, the projects of human civilization are easily revocable 
due to this the the just the meanness of the land i might put it that way um and and i'm not just thinking of the adirondacks because i think it's it actually speaks to a deeper um almost soulful element of the american heart um which is it's not just the adirondacks the alaska's like that montana's like that the rocky mountains are like that uh or the desert like you go down to arizona southern california some of those deserts i mean you are reminded constantly that you're only there because you know the the electricity went to the pump which pumps out the little bit of water that's there you know or because you got a half inch of rain last month that was enough to get you through and and if it weren't for that you wouldn't be there the Adirondacks epitomized that because the whole Northeast was totally settled up, um, you know, by the turn of, of the 19th century, you know, so much of those places, they were settled up, but the Adirondacks really resisted uh, full on settlement for a tremendous amount of time. Um, I mean, California, the gold rush was already going on by the time, a lot of what we now know today as the school districts and churches and town governments were set up in a lot of the far-flung regions of the Adirondack Park, um, which I find to be very significant. So I think a lot about that sort of thing. Could uh, you expand a little bit? I think in one of your essays you wrote about the actual meaning of the word. I think listeners might enjoy that or take meaning and kind of sense it. Sure, sure. So... So and and I guess I guess as part of that too I can kind of comment on why you know shagbark hickory is significant to me even though shagbark doesn't really grow hickory doesn't really grow inside the Adirondack Park it grows at the edges and I'm really from the edges of the Adirondack Park um, and that's where the Haudenosaunee people or the Iroquois people uh, lived because it's a fertile valley that's on the edge of the wilderness and they in their language. They had a name for the few of them and neighboring tribes, the few people who were dumb enough in their estimation to spend the winter up in the Adirondacks. And uh, that name was Haderanda, which to them meant bark eater, uh, because they would, they would, they would get so socked in with snow up there that hunting became impossible. And the land is, is, there's just a certain austerity about the land that would make it so that they would wind up surviving by eating pine bark and spruce bark and trekking through, you know, four, five, six feet of snow south to the longhouses of the Iroquois to beg them for food to survive. So that was their way of making fun of them and saying, oh, yeah, you, you guys are a bunch of bark eaters. So the name stuck when, when whites came to the area and asked native guides well what is this place up to the north and they would refer to it as hadiranda or, or use that word and that later became the word adirondack i think it's just amazing very interesting writing and just it's so i'm not going to say i'm going to be honest it's kind of exotic for where i live to even write about that i've been to ohio i have some friends who live in kind of on lake erie and things and i think that even is exotic for me living in an island community so you know, I appreciate the writing and the depth that you're going to link to the different tribes and the different people and even modern era and how that interacts with that. Um, you seem to be a great proponent of rural, I don't know if rural Masena, is that the correct term? Um, is that the town where you're living? Maybe you can talk about that a little bit and 
Yeah, so I'm not going to tell you exactly where I live, but I live in in northern, northern New York State, very close to Canada. In fact, uh, on my drive home from church, I can see Canada. Um, and I live up that way. And I like that, too, because... And I, I hesitate to talk about it publicly sometimes because I don't want it to get discovered by people who don't share our values and by by uh, predatory developers who, you know, they don't care about the local color of a place, you know, and they'll just come in and buy things up and turn them into Airbnbs. And then it's it's downhill fast from there. So I, I, I have not I've been online for years and I have not spoken about it until recently. Um but that whole region up there is a very interesting region because we're on the border with Quebec in Canada and up there it's so far from all the rest of the United States and it's in the state of New York which you know when I say New York you probably think of New York City and you probably imagine that if there is a New York state even though most people they don't even think that there could be to be honest um that it must be like a golf course north of New York City. Well, where I live, it's about six and a half hours from 34th Street in Midtown Manhattan, which is to say you could, from 34th Street in Midtown Manhattan, if you and I were standing there deliberating over whether to go get a pint in Dublin or whether to go to my house to have dinner, we would be about equidistant the 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 plane ride to dublin would take about as long all told as the drive to to you know where where i live um and i like that level of obscurity because obscurity is the protective blanket for original american culture and probably culture in general in a in a global sense if you're not relevant and not even just by happenstance but you're almost aggressively antiquarian and physically removed from the convenience of access that so many places have. Um, people forget about you, which is a blessing because that means when the, when the regional branch manager of Olive Garden is scoping out a new place to put up a, 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 an Olive Garden, they, they forget that you're there. So that, so that doesn't go in, which means the mom and pop store is still there. It means that the, uh, rent is low enough that the local character who's kind of a drunk, but he sells wagon wheels out of an old storefront and it's all disheveled and he sits there and rambles incoherently and chain smoke cigarettes. And, you know, he's kind of your buddy and, you know, he couldn't survive if that place became hot and rents went up. He, he couldn't pay a thousand dollars a month for a storefront, but he could pay, you know, 300. So he's there. I like it up there because we're wedged between Quebec and the Adirondack park and we're unknown and forgotten. And I love that aspect of it. And I don't want to ramble too long about this, but I really could, I could write books about it. I'm obsessed with it because another aspect of it that I like is that back a, quite a long time ago, the, the premier of, of uh, the provincial government in Quebec was known as uh, Maurice Duplessis. And he was a Catholic traditionalist. Um, and very, not even what we would call conservative. He was reactionary in the classical French sense of the word. 
and he was the one responsible for putting a crucifix up in in the uh, in the Quebecois House of Parliament. Very classical, old school values. Well, there were many Quebecois immigrants to Northern New York State at that time who retained those values, and they kept them on this side of the border, whereas Quebec itself secularized and became very, very, very left-leaning, and things really changed. So we have this weird little tendril of a, of a francophone traditionalism just kind of sleeping in this in the St. Lawrence River Valley, and I find it totally fascinating. Um, Are there so, people yes. in your region who speak French, or is that just totally lost? When I was when I was a child, and I'm not that old, but when I was a child, um, there there still were people who spoke French every day in their household. By all that I know, um, I think that that is being lost. Uh, however, you know, Catholicism is still dominant, and there still is a sense about the place that it doesn't feel conservative, right? In 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 the sense of when I go to Reno, Nevada, and people are you know, shooting automatic weapons and there's strip clubs and everybody's a Republican. You say, okay, well, it's a kind of a conservative place. Uh, there, it's more reactionary. Uh, you almost expect to see a castle in a cornfield. Um, people are almost peasant-like. That aspect of old provincial Quebecois culture and old upstate New York culture is still alive there and thriving, which is really an incredible thing to see. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm very enthusiastic about that. Um, as a teenager in your first, you know, I said in my email to you that you kind of reminded me of James Kunstler. How does a teenager in upstate New York discover Kunstler? I'm just curious how you kind of found his writing. Was it through his kind of long emergency writing or his urbanism? I'm just curious how you found him and what you value in him, if there's any value at all. I I had an interesting raise because... When I was a kid, I was sort of born and bred um, to be a sort of scholarly. I was a precocious little kid. I was obsessed with reading, and I, you know, I had many, many political opinions that I was really required to have by my grandfather, who's very traditional, old school Irishman. And um, at that time, I read prolifically about all manner of things. But but around the time I was a kid. Uh, the price of gas was going crazy. So I, I read anything I could about energy. And of course, Kunstler, you know, was writing a lot about uh, peak oil and not, not in the alarmist tone of the, of the seventies, but he was simply stating the fact that, you know, um, oil, oil wouldn't last forever. And that was a new idea to me, you know, as a, as a, as a boy. And um, that stuck with me. And then later when I found out that he was from upstate New York, it it was totally obvious to me how he would be from upstate New York talking how he how he is. Because really, if you want to understand the decline of Western civilization and what might come after or what it, what its preservation might look like on a smaller clustered scale, upstate New York is a place that you want to understand, you know. So. Yeah, I I, uh, I read him when I was very young. You know, like Kunstler, he kind of was a left-leaning kind of progressive in San Francisco. I'm curious what your experience was going to the cities and kind of exploring that aspect of, you know, engagement. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know what exactly you know about me um, because I hadn't interacted with you until 
this interview request, but I spent five years hitchhiking around the United States, um, occasionally riding freight trains. And I had all the politics of somebody who might do that. You know, I was an anarchist. Uh, I had I had an interest in, you know, anarcho-communism, left-leaning, very, very left-leaning ideas, um, as well as, I guess, uh, green anarchism. I was always very skeptical of civilization from a political perspective. And so when I traveled to cities, I did it not just as a hitchhiker, but as somebody who was actively engaged in, in um, anarchist politics. And so two things would happen. One is when, you, when you're hitchhiking, there's, there's different demographics who are attracted to the idea of picking up a hitchhiker. Some of the people are very poor people who are just doing it because it's a nice thing to do. You know, when a, when a Salvadoran immigrant picks me up uh, who can't speak English, he's doing it probably because he's a Catholic and because he wants to do something nice for somebody. Even though he doesn't have very much, you, you seem to have even less than he does. So he's just picking you up. And so you learn about that. Some people pick you up because they want to convert you to their particular um, flavor of Christianity. Some people pick you up because they have bad intentions or they might think that you might want to smoke marijuana with them or whatever it may be. But the, but the largest demographic and the most concerning demographic of people who pick you up are people who are desperate. Um, and I don't mean that in a poverty sense. I mean that like in an ontological sense, people who are, who are at their wits end, people who would pick me up and say, you know, you know why I picked you up. I picked you up because Tonight I'm about to I'm about to kill myself, and then I'd have to listen to them because what else can you do? And I'd listen to them, and I see how um, how dark the the interior life of people in in contemporary American society really is by and large. And obviously, I had a biased uh, selection sample, um, so I, I, I might've drawn darker conclusions than were really necessary to draw. I can certainly admit that, but then I would get into the cities and I would look around and I would keep noticing, look at these people. They look so sad. What are they missing? What are they missing? And I, it would always, I would always ask that question, <clears throat> what are they missing? And it eventually forced me to draw more or less reactionary conclusions in the sense that, um, people need they need God. They need a relationship with God. They need wilderness in their life as an expression of the perfection of God's creation. And they need a, a human culture that makes sense and is not subject to the whims of fashion or the market or the regulatory environment created by the state. And that is what eventually brought me back home. Even though this place is in what looks like terminal decline, uh, those the shreds of something livable that really help you evade the the you know the pandemic of sorrow uh, that that is is afoot in our culture they're here so <clears throat> I'm going to work to preserve them and to continue to live inside of them you know yeah I was familiar with your hitchhiking kind of experience and your squatting and things like that I think it's really interesting and I'm curious when that left-leaning kind of did you go to university or i think you were in the military right 
what was that kind of conversion into that perspective and then switching over to more of a, you call it reactionary, but I call it more, I guess, traditionalist. I, I don't know. Reactionary sounds more aggressive and negative. Um, I, <laughs> sure. I, I found a lot of positivism in your optimism. So that's what's really exciting about your writing is that you're not a doomer or kind of a gloom perspective. I think you want to isolate, create, you know, there's a lot of optimism in your writing. So I'm just curious how that shifted. Was it really the kind of seeing humanity um, on the road or what, you know, talk about that kind of political awakening that happened. Curious. Oh, I I could talk all day and night about that. I, I, I use the term reactionary, not without some um, conflict, you know, because it, it, it is just, it just factually describes those who were opposed to the French revolution, which today I would be, there was a time where I wouldn't have been. Um, but the, the, the key difference that I see between being a communist or an anarchist or, or really even just a, a progressive egalitarian and being a, a traditionalist or a reactionary is the admission that there are, that reality exists for good or for bad and, and taking a, a, a morally neutral, um, position at historical phenomena <clears throat> and sort of saying, well, maybe it's inevitable that there's going to be hierarchy. Maybe it's inevitable that there are going to be differences in human individuals and populations. And maybe by the by, um, you know, the, the, the present order of things is not entirely terrible. And by present order, I don't mean, you know, what's going on, you know, in, in 2023 in the United States, but I mean, Western Western civilization, you know, it, it, it's really easy to point the finger and to say, oh, well, you look at all these horrible excesses, you know, look at the, you know, the genocide of the Native Americans, look at the enslavement of Africans, look at these different things. And then you sort of realize, well, oh, these are, we're, we're not talking about, you know, characters in a, in a movie. We're talking about ourselves, really. We're talking about our great, 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 great grandfathers. How could they have done anything different? You know, and, and that sort of dawned on me concurrently with, with just um, maturity in a more general sense of sort of saying, well, yeah, I want these things to be ideal. I want the best. I want uh, a, a happy world where everything makes sense and there's total equity for, for all. And, and who, who wouldn't want that in a sense? The idea is very beautiful, but of course, beautiful ideas have led people to do horrible things. And one really only needs to delve into the history of communism to see that. And even as, even as a communist, I, f I was fully aware of that. And then there was a time where, where traveling got tiresome for me. And I took up residence in a cabin that I had built in the woods for a girl. And then in the spring, after after one winter in the cabin, the this girl says to me, she says, you know, um, you really got to do something with your life. You know, at the time I never paid taxes. I didn't have an ID. I didn't have a bank account. I, I had no resume to speak of. I had lived totally off the grid and, uh, uh, you know, out of a commitment to my ideals. And then at a certain point I said, wait a second, my ideals don't matter as much as my need to get my cavities filled. You know, they don't matter as much as my need for, you know, a new pair of boots. And then I joined the military. And then during the military, it was COVID. So I was in effectively solitary confinement. 
um, during COVID. And that really, that really changed me about a lot of things and made me realize that, you know, and not to ramble, I'm so sorry, I'm so long winded, but, um, um, there's really two ways to view the past. And I noticed like leftists do this a lot where they'll sort of say, oh, well, it was so bad in the, the era of traditional families, you know, because secretly there was domestic abuse and there was, you know, drug use and there was all these, these horrible things. And, the, and, you know, the son would be gay and he couldn't come out and everything was so bad. And you see this bad, 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 bad. But today we can be good. Uh, that's sort of the the leftist mindset. I think the traditionalist mindset is to say, look, it's always been bad. It's always going to be bad. So how do we make it beautiful today? How do we make it make sense today? How do we derive meaning from the things that we do today without necessarily denying reality so much that we're always swimming against a current that we can never gain any ground on? And that was what kind of got me to be more in the traditional mindset. Um and and I, I really haven't looked back from there, you know, and a lot of that is what also brought me back to upstate New York. Are you having success in kind of rebuilding local community or trying to re-engage now that you were moved from a nomadic kind of free life to a more based life? Well, it's 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 um it's a fledgling project still, you know. Uh, the 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 hour is early for me. But I know just in the last year where I've been able to be more firmly rooted uh, about where I want to be, um, I've seen some great things. Like um, I got involved with the Catholic land movement. And uh, who is it on Twitter? Michael Thomas of Sharon. He's kind of been heading this up for years. Him and his wife bought a farmhouse and they have many kids and they're, they're devout traditional Catholics. And I fell in with them after finding the Latin mass and um, they um, they're really, they're really making it happen. And I, and I, and I've hopped on board with them. I wound up speaking at the conference last summer and it was well attended, much more well attended than anybody anticipated it would be. And we're going to have another one here in June. And um, yeah, I get, it's a chore to go through my DMS to be honest. There are so many people who are interested. There are so many people who I maintain frequent contact with who are saying, if not, hey, I want to move in and be your neighbor. Uh, they're, they're at least saying, I am doing the same thing in my town and the time is nigh. And many of these people are former, you know, they might have voted for Bernie before um, the pandemic. They might have still had some faith in the dominant culture um, and, and it possibly you know, just sort of being uh, gently reformed. And now I think something happened in COVID where a big shift happened where people said, well, I don't necessarily want to become a a 90s style neocon Republican, but I have to admit that there are certain realities that need to be engaged with in in a practical manner. And that has brought so many people to say, well, the rural world makes sense. Um, The houses are affordable. The culture is not totally um, experimental and we can maintain a stasis here that can nourish the heart and the spirit. And I see so many people interested in that and I talk to them constantly. Um, So yes, I'm extremely encouraged with what's 
just starting to take root. Um, I hope to think that we're at the cutting edge of of what will constitute a major uh, shift in the in the culture among you know millennials and and even Zoomers. Do you think? Um, well, I have two questions. You know, millennials. I, I think a lot of Westerners are. Uh, you know, depending on your age, I don't know how old you are, Andrew, but there's kind of a failure in the, I guess, American or Western dream model. Um, I'm just curious if you feel like what dream are you trying to build? Are you trying to do your own local American dream or kind of a smaller scale or, you know, what do you think's failing in the society? I mean, there's a lot of degeneracy, like you said, but I'm curious, where do you think the model is that's really failing? Well, I would say this, I, the name of the, Oh goodness. The name of the book. Oh, I wish that I could remember the name of the book and its author. I read a book recently about um, Western civilization and guilt that basically postulated this idea that, you know, after the Protestant Reformation, you know, Christianity sort of fractionalized into a million different denominations with so many different rules, you know, and um, that, that often conflicted. And so something important was lost in the in the Western psyche, which was which was the mercy of the confessional booth. You know, Baptists don't do confession. Um, a lot of mainline Protestants they don't do confession, or they didn't, or they did, and then they sort of it sort of fell off. But it ceased to occupy a prominent position in the Western mind outside of Catholicism after a certain point. And I think that's a problem because when you have done wrong in your own life, you know, you go to the confessional, you confess your sins and the priest absolves you of guilt. And then you resolve to change and then it's over. And if that can happen in your own life, then the same principle can be modeled in your society. You can say, I've done wrong. You pay your debt, you do your penance, and then you move on. Western civilization has become unmoored from this aspect of its own original culture. So that now when we look back on our history collectively and we say, well, look at all these horrible things we did. We only focus on the bad out of a sense of maybe guilt. And then there's no reconciliation that is coherent enough to allow us to continue. So we have to engage in a sort of self-flagellation that is totally endless and goes on and on and on and on. And we can never repay the debts. And that's how you wind up turning places like Rhodesia into Zimbabwe, you know? Um, and, and I'm not saying Rhodesia was a perfect utopia. It wasn't. However, I think you would struggle to find anybody who would honestly say they would rather live in Zimbabwe than in Rhodesia. Um, now, just to fill you in on the history, if you don't know, I mean, there was just a sort of um, racial um, reconciliation idea of, oh, we're, we're going to take the white landowner's land, we black Africans, and we're going to use it in the way that makes sense. Well, they just wound up driving away all the white people who knew how to farm, and then the farms went fallow, and the country descended into chaos pretty quickly. So no actual sins were paid for and a country that had been functional with hospitals and bridges and schools uh, descended into becoming an, a third world country. 
And I see the same thing happening here in the West today. And so for me, I'm acting locally, but thinking globally to use the old kind of lefty phrase, just by saying, if I dig my heels in here and I don't say, oh, well, I need to retreat, you know, I need to abscond to Florida. Well, once Florida changes, then where do we go? You know, no, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to build a model that works and hopefully others will repeat that model elsewhere and it will empower young people in Western civilization to retain what's good about the West, to keep it alive and to not lose any more ground, you know, because I don't think that that would be best for anybody, to be honest. No, I think it's interesting. I, I think it's interesting comparing. Have you, when you're traveled, did you ever travel to Asia? No, I never, I never left North America as a traveler. Got it. Well, it's just interesting to see a, a society like Japan. They have a very strong cultural basis and homogeneity, of course, helps and language and history and culture. But I wouldn't call them reactionary. And when you go to Japan, everything seems to work. Um, but they're almost like you're saying, trying to keep basis in a traditionalism, but still right. kind of they're cosmopolitan in the sense that they import what they want and they adapt it to local needs. So I'm sure you're just as cosmopolitan. I mean, you'll take modern technology. You're not trying to totally revert, you know, uh, back to a traditional kind of primitive lifestyle or things. Um, Andrew, could you tell me a little bit about your conversion to Catholicism or is that a reawakening with religion? How oh, certainly. Yeah, I, um, I had grown up Roman Catholic and probably about the time I was 11 or 12, my grandmother left the church and I, I, my family situation changed. And as often happens with young Catholics, they leave the faith. Um, I didn't know why I didn't really think anything of it. I didn't really even know what was going on at the mass when I was a boy, but I was there for it and I remembered it. And that, that formed my moral compass as a kid. Um, and thank God that it did. Now, later, I would lose that. I would lose interest in that and then start traveling. And yeah, you become a punk. You become a communist. You become an anarchist. I became a heavy drinker. I, I took to uh, chasing women and looking for fights and, and just generally raising hell and um, going state to state and doing whatever. And I really valued freedom, freedom for its own sake, freedom unto freedom forever and ever and ever without any endpoint in mind. And, um, and I actually experienced it to the best degree that I could. I, nobody required anything of me. I, and I was often in remote areas of the country where the law was uh, a distant notion. So I really could do as I pleased. And, and I wasn't, I wasn't very happy uh, after, after so long of doing that. In fact, I was really hurting and I saw a lot of my friends in that world and that, in that kind of underground punk anarchist world, I saw a lot of them get involved in heroin or in pornography um, or in senseless violence or in political acts, which would put them in, in, in long prison sentences and things like that. And I watched so many lives get ruined. I watched some of my friends die right in front of me. And, um, that changed me. That does something to you to see that because you judge a tree by its fruit. 
I think this is this is out of the Bible, but it's also just common sense. So when you're looking around and you see, well, I see chaos, I don't feel very good, and I see brilliant young people ruining their lives with drugs, suicide, uh, pornography, uh, or, or senseless politics that really don't make any sense anyway. You have to examine your own values and say, well, what I'm doing doesn't make sense. I can't continue to do it because of pattern recognition. And so some years went on where I was sort of um, in a fugue because I knew this intuitively, but I was able to distract the senses enough. You know, I could go and I could continue to distract myself by drinking and chasing women and moving state to state. And But I knew that something was wrong. And then I had to join the military for health care and, and for, for some kind of a living. And then COVID came. And, you know, people had a hard time in lockdowns anyway throughout the U.S. But if you're in the military during COVID, anybody who's, who's reading this or listening to this who was in the military during COVID probably can tell you that we, many of us had a lockdown on steroids. And so for, for many months, I was alone in a room in a government facility bound by law not to leave. Uh, and I didn't interact with any human beings. And that took away all the coping mechanisms that could distract me from thinking about God or thinking about correcting my values um, to be a tree that would yield good fruit. And that was when I started to pray to to God and think about think about think about the fact that the book of John says that God is love. And then to think of what it means that a God could love us so much that he seeks to become fully human. He becomes fully human and suffers with us. And he makes himself totally meek until he actually dies for us. I found that to be the most compelling religious vision of any that I read during lockdown. And so I decided to convert to uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. Protestantism didn't make any sense to me. And, and it, to my mind, Catholicism was nothing remarkable because I had left the church. And so finally, we get out of lockdown and I begin to become an Orthodox catechumen. And then shortly after that, I meet a, I meet a young man who, who always went to Orthodox liturgy, but he never, um, he never came on Sunday. And I said to him one day, I said, how come you never come on Sunday? He said, well, I'm, I'm Catholic. And I looked at him and I said, how could you be Catholic if you're here all the time? Why wouldn't you be Orthodox? He said, oh, because we have Orthodoxy. Come see at the Latin Mass. And I went to that Latin Mass and that, and I never looked back uh, because at that time I was still processing the sort of weird grief of, of being in, in total isolation during COVID. And I had just uh, had a horrible relationship that actually resulted in the, the abortion of, of our uh, of our child. And I was processing that at the, at the mass and everything changed for me. And I have not looked back. I've attended Latin mass every Sunday since. No, it's it, it, in your writing, you write about the Amish and it kind of reminds me of the rung Springer process. That they go through. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I think some of your nomadic lifestyle was your own kind of dark night of the soul experience. Um, it I was mean, a totally extreme rum Springer. There's no question. <laughs> I'm curious. Um, so you got out of the military and then you keep going to church. 
I'm just curious if other people in the military did, what was that experience like? I mean, you were so isolated that you couldn't build friendships or bonds with others, or was it just total like prison self-isolation? Uh, I'm just curious what the environment and community of the military was like at that time. Were people looking it for was meaning? A- I mean, aren't there people from Alaska? You know, the one good thing about the military is you have people from all over the U.S. coming together, but maybe not. Yes. Yes. No, exactly. So um, there were all kinds of people who were um, going through the same thing. But the thing is, is I was a little older than anybody who was the same rank as me because I joined at 25. Most of these guys were 18, 19, 20. And um, most of them were still at the age where they, they, just sort of said, Oh, cool. We don't have to work very much or we don't have to work at all. I'm just going to play video games. And so they did, you know? So no, I didn't, I didn't see a lot of people experiencing the same thing I was experiencing. Although if they were, I guess I wouldn't have known it to be honest. I don't know. Um, but that was a strange time. Yeah. There was a period of time where the base I was on the mental health situation became so desperate that they had to have like a, like a suicide stand down and the chaplain got involved and all sorts of stuff like this. And, um, I don't know how much I should say about this, but you know, they, they finally decided to open up the bar. And I remember we could go in six at a time and have a, have a pint of something. And we would, we would, we could have two drinks and the bartender knew our situation felt bad for us. So he would fill pint glasses up with vodka and we would just sit there and get totally sauced together in silence six of us random people and then stagger back it was like something out of a out of a dostoevsky novel <laughs> you know yeah, it was a like very strange movie. yeah yeah it was a very 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 strange environment to to be in at all and um yeah that was that was one of the more difficult things i've had to do because it was it really was prison like i and i hate to sound like i'm just a complainer you know, um, I hate to, I hate to sound that way. I, cause I'm, I don't want to make it seem like I am, but gee, that was just so hard for me, um, to be locked down like that. So, well, yeah. on a more optimistic note, Andrew, I think a lot of your tweets and writing, you're trying to encourage people to look, I mean, you know, people are renting thousand dollar squats in Brooklyn and then you're like, well, you could own this house for three, $400 in you know, three, four hours away and have your own freedom. I'm curious how that's resonating or how are you just people just so clueless to that reality or what what are you experiencing with that? Oh, people, people seem to know. I, I think, I think things I've been on the internet long enough to know that things move in phases. Um, so right now we're at the phase where there's a handful of people stirring the pot. It's me and, and maybe a dozen dozen and a half other accounts who really like to hammer this point uh, of, of, Hey, get out of the cities. You know, they're, they're, they're filling up with crime. They're not a place to raise your kids. You don't want to be there. Come out to the country, buy a cheap house and let's all be friends. Let's cluster together. Let's not even all move to separate places. Let's all kind of hone in on a region and build a heartland, you know, for, for the, for the, the dissident traditionalist set. And, we're now at the stage where we're getting our hecklers because we have people's attention, you know, but more, more and more people are reading about this stuff. And I, I see it growing. 
And I think a lot of people are just scared to take the leap because you have to think, I mean, I bought a house in a town where I'm not from. I'm from, you know, a couple hours away. So I'm from a culturally similar enough area to where it's not hard for me to make friends and be able to be seen eye to eye um, in that respect. But it's still difficult because I'm not from there. These places are so insular and tiny that you're not, um, it's not easy to be accepted. People will look at you with a lot of skepticism. And in a city, you could go out and make some friends in, in, in one weekend. In the countryside, sometimes it takes four, five, six months. Sometimes it takes a couple of years to really figure out who your people are going to be. So the pace of life is a lot slower, which is good. It's less stressful, but it's also kind of a trying thing. So my thought is that a lot of people are watching at the sidelines right now saying, huh, maybe I could see myself doing that, but I don't really know. Once we can all coalesce in a handful of regions with affordable housing and people can say, oh, well, that guy from Twitter, he already lives there. And so does that other guy from Twitter. Well, he lives down the road from him. And there's a house between them that's going for sale for 60 grand. Maybe I'll buy it. It's a lot easier to imagine doing that uh, when others are involved than to just say, all right, well, I've read the numbers uh, on what makes sense economically. Now I'm going to just go and do it, you know? Um, so we're, we're just building up that momentum and getting groups of people to say, yes, I'm all in, you know, and that takes time. One of the things that I think is interesting about upstate New York and your writing that I wasn't aware of, and maybe Kunstler writes about this too, is that the bones of upstate New York seem pretty solid to a civilizational project unlike, you know, Nevada or something, right? You have old towns that flourished and now they're, you know, depopulated. So I'm just curious what your experience is with that. Or you seem to write a lot about kind of revitalizing town squares or trying to re-engage kind of the local importance of a communal city infrastructure, not a city, but a town infrastructure compared to say, you know, like Nevada or Utah or just somewhere really remote. Yeah, it's it's a little bit different because, yeah, there's a lot of people who I, I've, I've said this before elsewhere that um, one of the great drawbacks of the Western mind is that we have a, a tendency to overcorrect on an extreme basis. So people will look at, um, at my, the example I like to give is factory farming. You learn about factory farming. You say, boy, that's horrible. And so what do you do? You become vegan. And then after so many years of being vegan, you say, oh, my joints hurt because you're not getting enough uh, nutrients. So then you say, all right, well, now I'm paleo. Now I'm a carnivore. And then you get gout because you've eaten so much meat. When the whole time you could have really just eaten a balanced diet and, um, you know, gotten some free range beef, that would have been very sensible. But you had to overcorrect and respond as intensely as you could to each problem as you met it. And I see the same thing happening today with these issues that we're talking about is people look at, um, oh, well, the, the rat race of the city, the, the obnoxiousness of, of hipster yuppies in, in the city or the craziness that happens in these progressive schools and, and uh, civil unrest and all this stuff. So ergo, I need to move to, North Slope, Alaska, you know, or something very off the grid. 
and most of these people who attempt that, they either don't attempt it to begin with because it takes money to do that, to be honest, for most people, if unless you have the skills, which these people don't, uh, or if you do do it, you find very quickly that without a community, things become difficult. So they have a high rate of failure. Whereas here, it's a little more gentle. There's a town probably every eight or 10 miles, a little teeny tiny town that might have a feed store or a bar or one church or a general store. And it's a loose grid where there's plenty of space. Housing isn't expensive. And but there's enough people around and in, where, where there's a real culture. If you go into the stone cold wilderness, there's no culture there except for what the beaver does and what the black spruce tree does and what the moss is doing. And if you can get on that level, God bless you. But most people don't because it takes so much effort to learn how to do that. Um, and even then, even if you know how to do it, if you're doing it alone, you'll be alone. And that's, that's most people are not called to that cross in life. So these rural towns, they, the infrastructure is still there. You'll go to some of these towns and you'll see, you know, uh, my cousin works on a railroad and he works on one of the most remote railroads in the state. He was under a drainage ditch to clear out beaver dams and he cleared out the beaver dam and went underneath the water when it drained out. And he said, all of the bridges, they were corbelled bridges with masonry work that was very intricate. And he said he sat out there for a long time thinking about somebody built this beautiful bridge truly in the wilderness where nobody would ever see it. That's how the infrastructure is in the state. There's all these gorgeous houses and libraries and little details on things that all it takes is somebody with a vision to love that little thing back into uh, its full glory. And that is a so much more realistic prospect than saying, oh, I'm going to go homestead on 100 acres in northern Idaho. Some people will do that, but very few. Have you read Dmitry Orlov? I can't say that I have, no. Okay, he's a Russian writer who writes about collapse. He's actually Russian-American. He grew up in the U.S. Um, or he left the Soviet Union when he was 10, moved to the U.S., lived in the U.S. for about 30, 40 years, and then he moved back to Russia. And right. he models that the U.S. and the West is, they're just maybe 40 years behind the Soviet collapse. And he he's an excellent writer. He's really worth, he's talked to James Kunstler a lot. And it's interesting because the place you're writing about in upstate New York has a lot of the bones that are, when the Soviet Union collapsed, it had the infrastructure that it wasn't a total failure of civilization. People had housing, they had education even though there was absolute chaos and poverty in the economic system, people still had the bones of railroads, of subways, of buildings, of, you know what I mean? If you have collapse yes. in Los Angeles, people aren't connected civilizationally there. You're going to have like a police state. It's just not going to work. It's going to be chaos, right? But you're saying you're little towns and there's enough people, but not too many people that, you know, you could have a loose civilizational project, even if you had a so-called collapse or a decline in, you know, oil or food systems or whatnot. So that, that's an interesting, I mean, you've chosen well or whatnot, and you're kind of choosing your project. I think in one of your essays, you had all the points that you think people should choose. I forget, maybe you could, I was right. I wrote them down. Um, I mean, I guess my question is, are you concerned about collapse of civilization or not? Or Certainly. Just, and what does Certainly that mean I for am. you? 
yeah i think it's i've i've yeah i've i've been primarily concerned with that for since i was probably 14 to be <laughs> to be totally honest um and there have been times in my life where i thought that it would be some you know dramatic spectacular uh event and i don't think that it will i think that we're we're living in the collapse you look at um any number of collapsed civilizations and you can just see that it's less like a dramatic oh we're going 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 and then drop off a cliff most of the time it's more like a staircase uh john michael greer has written about this if you follow him and i think we're living through that now i i even think and and i don't know i i don't know what exactly i i I can say or what limits I ought to have in an interview with you, but you know, even things culturally, you know, you look at the normalization of, of the use of hard drugs. You look at the normalization of a lot of these strange sexual perversions. These are bellwethers that really reflect a material shift um, that's underlying because people begin to, feel the effects of a material shift in their living conditions um, in some gentle way, in some almost financialized way, and they begin to change their prerogatives in life and uh, distract themselves with something that, that um, I don't know, distracts them from the fact that they can't just go and get a great, you know, nine to five job anymore. Um, and so then, then I have to look as a young person in that environment and I have to say, well, what do I do? Well, I don't do that. I don't. I don't go and get high and distract myself. I tried that, and I, and I wasn't happy. You know, um, what do I do instead? Well, I look at I look at land, and you have to look at land, and you have to understand that land is unequal, and what land is going to inherently um, be fertile ground for a, a decentralized expression of human civilization. I lived in the desert. All you have to do in certain parts of the desert is turn off the water, turn off the power. And then guess what? You have no AC because there's no power, which means you can't be there, frankly. And if you turn off the water, it means you have no economy because all of the economy runs on water. And so very easily you realize, all right, I'm living in a place where if the grid fails, I have to leave. And I'll be leaving at the same time as many other people. I don't want to do that. Here, I could live a lifestyle that could be totally supported by activities that take place within 20 miles of my house, for the most part. There are a couple things that we might need, maybe salt, you know, but for the most part, we're in a community that will be able to support itself. I'm never going to be able to support myself. Not alone. I'm not going to, I'm not going to make myself a steel axe and, you know, uh, make, make, uh, make myself chairs and beds and curtains and beef and milk and chicken and gravel and uh, you name it. Um, nobody has that kind of time. We need communities where those things can be redundant and the only way that that's going to happen in a way that that isn't totally reliant on oil is to live on pieces of land that have water, a low incidence of natural disasters, 
uh, a, a predominantly homogenous population that's that's high trust and uh, hopefully lots of good soil and hardwood forest. That's what is objectively going to be valuable in the future. And that means the northern northeast is is one of the best places you could be. The upper peninsula of Michigan is one of the best places you could be. Wisconsin, Minnesota, these types of places, um, they're going to thrive in the future. So it's a good bet, you know. I'm curious, um, what do you feel about some of the generosity of kind of the opiate situation happening? Is it worse in the cities or worse in the rural environments? Or I'm just curious what you're seeing with that. Oh, um, I don't know that it's worse in the cities or in the countryside, to be honest. I think in the cities, it's more concentrated. Um, so you see it more, you know, if you go to, if you go to certain neighborhoods in Philadelphia, you'll see it, um, in the countryside, it's still there, but certainly, I don't know. I don't, (laughs) I don't want to get in trouble with anybody, but I, I think that there are people who are well aware of this situation and they don't care. I think there are, I think basically I'm, I'm at the point where if the authorities are tolerating this. Uh, I almost wonder whether they're whether they're doing so deliberately. Um, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but you know, well, we no, seem to take was that police uh, in San Jose. I think she was just indicted for being a major importer of fentanyl, and she was on the police commission and whatnot. So I'm, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I grew up in South America in Brazil, yeah, and Chile. So yeah, I've already kind of experienced a, a slow decline of civilizational standards. And the right. interesting thing about South America is that we're just ahead of the rest of the West, in my understanding. Absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. the shift, though, sometimes comes back and forth. So if you look at like El Salvador, I don't know if you've heard of Bukele, but he's kind of a hard right kind of Singaporean light dictator. And he's really kind of implementing a no uh you know, so you're seeing a swing back the other right. My my family, for instance, when they had, I don't know if you know anything about Chile, but there was a Allende who was a socialist president who destroyed the country in three years. The richest country in South America was literally destroyed in three years by terrible communist policies. My family had a business, a factory taken over by the government, destroyed. And then you had a switch back to Pinochet, which was a, a hard right dictator. And, you know, obviously there was faults with that policy, but, you know, he normalized normal life for normal people at a cost. So right. my concern in the US is that if you keep going so left, so left, you know, you know, San Francisco kind of progressive destruction of cities and normalization of life, you're going to eventually have a hard right response. And absolutely I think the model you're suggesting is not a hard right. I think it's a traditionalist I think is more not a libertarian, but you just want people to be decentralized and uh, live in their small community. So uh, do you have worries about a hard right coming in or a hard state? I think where you guys live, it's maybe you don't even have interactions with the state so much. <laughs> no, not, not so much. Um, you know what I'll say is, is, and, and, and it's dicey to bring up and, and I don't know, you can edit it out if you think it's not great, but uh, what is it? Um, Ted Kaczynski wrote a book from prison that, I read just for the sake of reading because 
I find his work to be interesting, although I will publicly say I disavow the actions that he took. Um, you know, he wrote an essay called Hit Where It Hurts uh, about his whole thing and, and whatever. You, you could think whatever you want about him and what he has to say. But he made a good point. He said that there's 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 a difference in the in the durometer of social systems in the difference between rubber and iron you would think that iron is is harder than rubber and it is but iron also shatters rubber doesn't rubber flexes that's why bulletproof vests are made out of teflon instead of iron because if you were to shoot iron it would just shatter and it would be over his point was was saying that you know there have been totalitarian states in the past that they failed because they were so rigid and the the one of the genius aspects of the modern neoliberal capitalist system is that it's almost made out of rubber in that it just um it will flex if you poke it it moves and it says, oh, no, no, no. If, if, you, if you cast your aspersions, you say, you've done this wrong. They say, oh, have we done this wrong? Maybe we need to make amends, blah, 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 blah. All while concealing the fact that the same old thing is going on in the machinery underneath. And I, this is how I view the difference between, you know, hard right um, politics and, and reactionary or traditionalist politics, right? Is that, you know, maybe there are similarities in the ends that people in either camp uh, wish to attain, but one of them, one of them is so uh, guilty of the Western tendency towards overcorrection um, that they go so far that then there's a reaction against them, and that's been the 20th century in so many ways. You know, you go left, and 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 then you go so far left that things go crazy, and then you go right, you go so far right that things go crazy, and then you go left, and 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 it's back and forth, it's ping pong. And I think the way to stop the ping pong, um, that has been found in the 20th century, came from the left, with with a sort of FDR-inspired liberal progressivism, that just said, well, we're not communists, but we're you know progressive lefty type people. And um, no, we, we we disavow communism. We disavow fascism. We're going to just be a little softer, and still get our objectives completed. I feel like that's what traditionalism really has to be. It's a little softer. We're not. I don't want to go. I don't want to be violent for one. Genuinely, I don't want to. Um, you know, march around and and make big gaudy displays. I want to be a humble peasant. I want to pray. I want to have a simple house. I want to love my family. I want to have a big family and I want my neighbors to come over for dinner. That's all that I want. I don't, I shouldn't need to uh, write some wild manifesto about that. I shouldn't need to be doing the things that I'm doing. These things should be intuitive and, and people should just naturally gravitate towards them because they're in line with our nature. And that is so different from some kind of, you know, I don't know, um, Matthew Heimbach, uh, Tiki Torch thing, you know, and I see, I see why people go that way. Um, but, but I think it's very naive and I think it's very short-sighted. And I think that the, the traditions of the church and the traditions that are inherent to the land and to the, the already existing cultural infrastructure that exists on the land, that's where the real lasting possibilities lay. Um, so no, I'm not, 
I'm not like uh, a, a conservative. I'm not. I'm not right wing in that sense. I'm. I'm simply advocating a return to tradition and a reaction against uh, any revolutionary force in the culture, be it, be it from the left or from the right. Anything that's revolutionary is bad <laughs> to me and is contrary to our nature and is bound to um, result in a big ping pong game that will, that will cause a lot of unnecessary grief. Going back to Ted Kuczynski, um, you really need to read Dmitry Orlov. He writes a lot about Ted Kuczynski as well. Um, maybe we can talk about technology, and that's one of the main issues with Kavinsky. Um, are you concerned about the technosphere or the expansion of, you know, AI? And I mean, you used to use you use technology quite well for your community building. I'm just curious what your general thoughts are on that movement. Yeah, I mean, I I I was laughing at myself the other night because I'm sitting there in my in my house. I, I all my lights are gas lights. Um, you know, that, that I use actually on a nightly basis. I have the gas lights lamp, the gas lamps lit and the Amish are going by with their horse and buggy outside and I'm on Twitter, you know, that might tell you how I feel about technology. The reason I'm on Twitter is that it's a way for me to have real life interactions with people who matter. And I'm not afraid of, you know, everybody's worried about feds and things like that. I don't advocate for anything illegal. And maybe that's naive of me. And, and you know, if they take me away, so be it. At the end of the day, I'm trying to meet my followers. I'm trying to meet the people that I follow. And I do. I, I frequently, I, I meet all kinds of people from there. Um, so that's what I use in lieu of having the, the robustness of a, a real original traditional face-to-face community uh that i want to that i want to build so for now it works but yeah when it comes to technology in general i am naturally skeptical about everything and 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 part of that is 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 out of reverence for the wilderness part of it is out of reverence for god you know i mean god made day and night why do i have the lights on it's time for sleep it's time for rest it's time for reflection it's time for prayer it's a distraction if i have every light in the house on and i'm running around like it's noon why would i do that what would i gain by doing that um i find that i'm happier if i turn the lights off you know and i light a candle you know um i dream to live with no vehicle i don't want to have a car I don't care about automotive vehicles. I'm not interested in that. I would, I would dream for the day where I could live in a handful of square miles and uh, not leave for years on end or, or possibly decades on end. And I'm serious about that. And I've earned my right to say it because I've traveled so much. <laughs> I, I, that's how I feel about a lot of these technologies. And so I'll only use them if they make up for a stopgap. If, if, if I can use them as a stopgap, for what has deteriorated in the culture that I live in. You know what I mean? Yeah, because before you're saying that your town square, you'd have the bar and then it would be full of life and community and you're finding that online instead. So Exactly, yes. Yep. Yep, not like I don't go to the local bar. I do. You know, not like I don't go to events. I I go to mass. Sometimes I go every day. Um, and that's great, but I, I want to really kick it up a notch. And I also want to share what we do have with people who are looking for what we have. 
but I want them to be the right kind of people. You know, um, that's why I get cagey sometimes. I don't want to tell people right where I live, but I do want to advertise to find the right kind of people. <laughs> so it's, it's very, that's my, my biggest challenge with using the internet is I don't want to go viral unless it's among traditional Catholics or, you know, dissident right people or, uh, you know, homesteader type people who are, who are thinking the right way, you know? <laughs> so. Well, I'm, I'm neither of those and I can find your writing interesting. So I think if you're branching outside of those communities, I think there's still value. I mean, you could be a, a Hindu and be value, you know, find value in respecting your traditions and not just absorbing a corporate kind of top-down cultural norm. So I think I do value. agree. Right, I so. do agree. I, I guess I, I'll be more specific and say that I'm hiding from from the um, the people who are all migrating out of California and are bringing their progressive values with them wherever they go um, or migrating out of New York City and Boston. I, I, I want to be I want to fly under their radar, <laughs> you know. But in terms of um, local community, do you have any insights or interest in kind of running for politics or running, taking over the actual civic infrastructure? I'm not there yet, but I will be. Yeah, because I think um, that can help yeah. maintain or shape what you want in a community. I think people are so, you know, concerned about national politics, but when the local, they don't even know who their local supervisor is, who has dictatorial power over their life. Uh, we're we're ripe for it because the median age in county and state politics in in my state is high uh for the most part and the the you know the power cartel in the representing the conservative side of of upstate new york has proven to be totally ineffectual and people are tired of it this whole region is ripe for um it's ripe for a, you know, a sort of J.D. Vance a character, you know, or somebody who's going to be young and is going to come at it from a different perspective and know how to interface with the Internet in a more effective way than our, our current representatives do. I'm not saying I'm that guy. Uh, I may be, I may not. Um, but certainly we're ripe for that sort of thing. And at a minimum, I would like to get involved in, in you know, town politics, county politics, but I want to do so gently and gingerly um, because I don't want to upset any of the locals. I really do want to represent the locals if, if I get involved in that, but I'm a few years from that, you know, for sure. In terms of localism, um, what are the worst downsides of what you're seeing in just your, your new project for trying to revitalize kind of rural communities? What's your biggest challenges? Is it just economic? Is it political? Is it civic? Just curious. Um, it's a couple of things. The, the, the one just on a personal level is, is it is, um, it is lonesome in a sense, because what I really need right now is I need a hard core of people who are um, committed and willing to go all in and people who I work well with, who are in my immediate geographical location i don't have that right now and it's it's starting to blossom um but while i've been waiting for that to come to to fruition yeah there are days where i look up and i say shoot you know i'm uh it's just me up here 
you know. Um, but it's okay. I, I'm I'm cheery through that. I'm optimistic through that because I see how things are taking shape. The other the other difficulty that I have is telling people, hey, you know, you can move up here and watching real estate inventory uh, shrink uh, currently. And, and more than that, just knowing that the real estate market is really unstable. Um, because, yeah, a lot of what I'm doing is built around the reality that even through COVID, housing remained very cheap here, you know, and um, that's a huge deal. And as soon as you take that away, um, the possibility of, of being able to cluster in the way that I think is necessary sort of goes out the window. You know, um, a lot of, and, and I see this on the, on the, on the progressive or the leftist side of the house is a lot of them made their heartlands. I mean, you know, if somebody becomes, you know, a socialist and they join the DSA and they say, Hey, I'm moving to a new place, you know, where they'll probably go. They'll probably go to Brooklyn or Oakland or Boston or Seattle. And how did those become hubs for that sort of thing? Well, people with those politics went there when housing was cheap and changed the culture of those places. You had squatters in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and uh, you had the, the early gentrifiers of Williamsburg and um, Bushwick and Brooklyn. Uh, you had the gentrifiers of Oakland, the early days. We need to do the same thing in the rural sense, and we really all need to act while housing is still cheap. And we need to act in an organized fashion. Um, and, and the whole deal is time sensitive because of the way that the housing markets are. And so I do worry that uh, I could go to all this effort and we could miss the, we could miss the opportunity. And then what? Uh, so that's, that's the biggest difficulty is, is trying to get everything orchestrated before um, the, the housing cease, ceases to be as cheap as it is today, you know. What are your interactions? You, you seem to be near the Amish. Do they consider you the English or what? Or are they just kind of standoffish or what's their um, lifestyle like then, your interactions with them? And they seem to be a oh, model for you. They're completely friendly. Yeah, I mean, if, if they had the Eucharist and submitted to the authority of, of, the, of the Roman Catholic Church, I would be one of them. Uh, but sadly, they don't. Um, you can stop by. If you see one in a field, you can pull over and you start talking to them and asking them things and saying, hey, do you know such and such? Uh, you know, uh, like right now I need a new roof. So, you know, you pull up, you say, hey, do you know anybody who does a roof? And they'll say, oh, yeah, you go down to such and such road and he should be there if it's a Tuesday. And then you go out there and you talk to you talk to him and you get a quote. You know, um, they're very they're very respectful. They're very peaceful. And they only seem to do good for the community. Uh, there's, there's really very little you can say about them that's negative. I think some people take issue with how they treat their horses. Uh, some people take issue with how they treat their wives and their children. Um, but I don't know. I don't know anything about those things. But yeah, they're good neighbors. You know, they're very good neighbors. And they're a good example of, of why it's good to live in a high fertility rate society. Because if, if there's work that needs to be done, they have the manpower to do anything. I mean, give them, give them an hour and tell them you're giving them lunch and they can go get it done if, if it really needs doing, um, which is incredible. 
and you see the English who just sort of went on birth strike at a certain point and just stopped having kids. They, they don't have that. It's, it's like, you know, everybody's fallen all over themselves to find a guy in his thirties who's strong and can show up and isn't already busy doing something, you know? So I've learned a lot from them in that respect. And it has me thinking a lot about how much I want to have a large family. Uh, Andrew, how are, I mean, what are the local, I don't know, the dating scene or what, what is that project going on? You're not married yet, right? I'm not. No, I, well, I find, uh, I, I find myself on Twitter, uh, talking to uh, folks from there, uh, in that department. And, um, that's an interesting thing that is a way better than a dating app. Um, and then locally, yeah, I do, I do have trouble with it sometimes because, um, I don't know. I, I, People don't, people don't trust you if you've left. And anyway, I mean, at, at my age, if you're single, they sort of say, well, why, you know, um, there's usually a reason. So, so all the, all the women who are my age and are single here, it, most of them are, they already have kids. They already are married or, or they're doing very badly and they're on drugs. Uh, <laughs> so it's a little bit of a tough, uh, it's a tough dating scene, but it's, it does exist and it's there. And uh, in the Catholic world, especially, there's a lot of uh, good possibilities that exist. Um, and then one yeah. of my other questions, one of my last questions, Andrew, what is the um, the net migration into these places like? I mean, are there Salvadorians moving in? Are, are there Latin communities building? Are there? Are, you no. Know, so they just, no. because their jobs aren't there or just not supportive of? It's a, it's a very, very, very ethnically homogenous region. Um, I mean, the net migration basically looks like Amish people in my particular place. There are counties that are seeing a certain amount of Latino migration uh, due to farm labor opportunities. And the, my state has made laws favoring farm workers um, from elsewhere. Uh, so I think some of them are wise to it and have come here for better pay. Um, but it's still minimal. It's still well under a percent of any given township I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, but no, it's a very, it's a very, very, very uh, homogenous area where, you know, if you want to talk about diversity, you're talking about, well, are your neighbors German or Irish or uh, of French descent? you know um and then yeah what, so what are the economic prospects do you feel like they're growing or not or no they're they're dim they're certainly dim and i i uh i yeah anybody who really wants to get rich shouldn't come here um i don't care about it because you know i i follow i follow christ and christ taught us not to worry about that stuff you know i mean as long as you have enough then you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And here you can, you can get enough because the housing is so cheap. I'll give you an example. My mortgage is $400 a month. Um, the minimum wage in this state is 1420. So even if I were to work a minimum wage job full time, one week's paycheck would pay my mortgage. Um, I.e. my housing costs are 
of my post-tax income at minimum wage. You don't have that in, in most of the United States. That's one of the best uh, value propositions that exists. And I'm not saying I want to work for minimum wage or that I have to. Um, you know, I've, I've gotten job offers that are double minimum wage, and I'm not particularly qualified to do much, and I have no degree. Uh, so it, it exists. And uh, a lot of the people who complain about the prospects up here are um, people who just don't, ha they don't have it together. You know, they can't pass a drug test. They can't quit smoking weed. They can't show up at seven Monday through Friday and get the job done. Um, if you can do all those things, you'll make it, especially in this job market. But again, that ties into what I was saying about how some of the, what I'm doing is time sensitive because job markets can change. Housing markets can change right now. Presently, the deal is very good. Uh, unless you're the type of person who, yeah, I want to have three BMWs and a 5,000 square foot house. If that's what you want to do, don't come here because you'll have a, you'll have a hard time doing that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think that, um, some simplicity in, in, in our finances is not, it's not a bad thing. It actually liberates us and, and can often get us more time to spend with our families and to spend in prayer and to spend working on projects like this um, that don't necessarily pay you anything. Well, one of the things I, th I think you're on your Twitter feed, you were talking about how, I don't know if your relatives or whatnot, you were all trying to strategize how the best strategies for not working and how all jobs are basically just time sucks. And I, th I thought it was quite funny because you guys all have your own side projects and it, it seems more liberating. And I wonder if that you realize that from a, your times of exploring freedom and you know, time is obviously the most valuable thing we have. So it is, it is. And it's the glue that holds families together. I mean, how many families have strife because the father is away 60, 70, 80 hours a week between work and commuting and his wife doesn't feel special anymore and his kids don't know who he is and then things fall apart. So if the father is the paragon of, of the success of the household, he needs to actually be physically present as much as possible. And, and then also you have to do the math. You know, I mean, if, to, if I were to heat my house with heating oil all winter, it would probably cost me $5,000, something like that. And I have a small house. Um, so if I work a job that makes sure that I don't have time to get firewood in and that job pays me $5,000 a year more than the job that did let me get the firewood in well, then I'm not any better off because firewood can be free if you're smart about it and if you have time to go out and find it. Um, so that's how you do it. You reduce your expenses and make it so that you determine, well, how much do I have to work? And you go from there so that if it comes up and you say, hey, you know what? Uh, we just had a baby. I, I'm not. I'm not going and working. I mean, yeah, I'll do the firewood. I'll fix up the house. I'll do my little side business. That's the lifestyle, you know? And, and yeah, my people have been living that way for generations. So um, that's a tradition worth keeping because it can keep our, our marriages intact and it can keep our, it can let us educate our children properly, you know? Andrew, um, do you have any final thoughts or how can people find you or connect with you? Oh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, 
it's just little old me. I'm not, I'm not really anything special. A lot of people find, find the things I'm saying interesting, but, um, it's, it's not me. I'm j- I, I almost feel like I'm just channeling the things that America has taught me, you know, like I travel, I pick up what I can from traveling. I put it together and then I start talking. So, you know, I don't like it when people are praising me so much and people do sometimes. And that, that is a lot for me. <laughs> so it really is just America and it, and it is, and it is the, and it is the Lord. Uh, the other thing is you can get a, you can get a hold of me um, on Twitter at shagbark underscore hick and on um, Substack, um, which is the same username. I think it's shagbark underscore hick or some such. There's a link to it in my Twitter bio. Um, and yeah, my, my DMS are open. Great, Andrew. I really appreciate your time and thanks for your time with these questions. I, maybe it's exotic for us and to communicate, but I think you have readers all over the world. So, uh, thank you.